Thank you for joining us today. This is part two of Ephesians chapter four. We'll be studying Ephesians chapter four, verses 18 through 32. We'll be discussing our walk as Christians as well as anger. So if you'll open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter four, we'll begin our lesson. We're just so thankful for your word, this book, Paul, everything that Paul had to go through that we've been studying, just so much for him to teach us, the Holy Spirit working through him, obviously, and I'm just so appreciative of that. And I thank you for this time of year, Father, uh, this Christmas time. It's so important that we remember that this is the season of the birth of your son and what that means for us. We're all sinners, and had it not been for this grace that you've given us and the forgiveness of our sins through your son, Jesus Christ, we'd just all be totally lost. And as we read in Ephesians, we were dead. So thank you, Father, for the gift of your son. We're not forgetful that Christmas, you can't have just a birth. We had to have Easter also and, and just appreciate the incredible sacrifice that Jesus went through just for us, just your grace poured out on us. We thank you. You're an awesome God. I ask that you just guide our discussions today in a way that resonates with each one of us so that we can live our lives not only here at work, but with our families over the Christmas season in a way that reflects you to others. Give us the ability to speak to others in a way that can draw them into a relationship with you if they don't already have one or that can strengthen that. Give us the encouragement through your word and, and the strength to actually live out our life the way you intend as we read your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Ephesians. We started in chapter 1 several weeks ago. So let me just, because I know we've got some folks that have been traveling the last couple of weeks. So let me just, I'm not going to do it justice, but give a real quick summary of where we've been. Paul starts out explaining that he chose us. I'm in chapter 1, verse 4, before the foundation of the world and adopted us as sons. So this adoption, we talked about how through this adoption, it means we inherit. You can see in verse 11, we've obtained this inheritance according to his purpose. And so the first three books of Ephesians are really talking about our position in Christ, in the position of the church, in who we are in Christ. We see down in verse 13 and 14 that because of our faith, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's given as a pledge of our inheritance. So it's, a, it's like a down payment. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us as believers, as Christians, to help us become the people that God wants us to be. And then we see over in chapter 2, verse 1, what we were before says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Being dead, that's not just sick. That's not just a little ill. We were dead. We were totally separated from God through our rebellion. We're spiritually dead. And yet through this grace from God who gave us our faith, we see down in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, which I've told you are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So there isn't anything that we've done to merit it. We haven't earned it. We can't earn it. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we've been saved. We continued on. We saw how there was this mystery when we got over to chapter 3. 
we see in verse 4, this mystery of Christ, which is then explained in verse 6. It says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. This was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament, but that it is God's plan for the Gentiles and Jews that we would be one body in the church. And this is now revealed to us. And we see in verse 9, it was a mystery. It had been hidden for ages and yet now it's being revealed to us. We see down in 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So this is the Holy Spirit coming in and living inside of us as Christians. In verse 18, so that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints, that's with all the believers, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. That is what the Holy Spirit helps us do. So we started out in chapter 4, last week and we didn't finish so uh, just to kind of summarize some of the first part in fact i'm going to go ahead and read the whole first part until i get to 17 where we left off and i'll touch a little bit on that and then we'll go on into today's lesson so chapter 4 verse 1 i therefore and there the therefore meaning based on everything that we've seen in the first three chapters we're now in in chapters 4 through 6 going to get into the application what our Christian conduct should be, what our response should be, given our position now in Jesus Christ that we learned about in the first three chapters. So I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul talking, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So he's telling us that we should live in the manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called. With all humility and gentleness, and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, so we should have this unity, being diligent to persevere the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, meaning there's just one salvation in Jesus Christ. Verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we talked about this last week. One God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we spent some time talking about how we don't all receive the same gifts. We all have different jobs to do as being part of this body of Christ. We spent some time talking about that. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's the purpose of the gifts, and that's the purpose that each one of us would have. And we spent some time talking about how most believe that the role of the apostles and prophets, they laid the foundation for the church, as we saw in Ephesians 2.20, but they are no more. Now there's evangelists and pastors and teachers, and we should all take part in helping equip others where we're called to disciples, make disciples of others. That's, that's the role each of us have. 
to build up the body of Christ. And it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so we spent really most of the time towards the end last week talking about we're all to mature. It's great just to gain knowledge, but it's not about just gaining knowledge and not doing anything with it. We've got to mature. We spent some time talking where Paul has said we got to get off the milk. And actually, if you think about milk, a mother's milk, you know, it's pre-digested food. And so at some point, we got to get off of pre-digested food and we got to go to the Word ourselves and dig into the Word and understand the Word and grow up and mature to become mature men, no longer children, we're able to then speak the truth in love and help others grow and mature. That's each of our role. We have a role to play in that. Maybe different ways that we each go about that, but we're each called to do that because you think of this body of Christ. We're not all an arm and we're not all a leg and we're not all an eye or an ear. We all have different roles to play and it's important. We, we Several weeks ago, we even talked about why did God leave you here? Why are you left here on this earth? I mean, when you became a Christian, why not just zap you up? I mean, you got your ticket, you know, why not, why not go on to heaven? Well, because he wants us to help build this body of believers with the Holy Spirit working through us to make that happen. And it's very important, I think, for each of us to, to pray and seek discernment from the Holy Spirit as to what is our role. We each have vocations, we have jobs, but that's not why God left you here. Yeah, certainly we have a responsibility to take care of our family and spouse and, and what have you, but that's not the primary duty that you have. Otherwise, he, why not just zap you up to heaven? There's a role for each of us to play to build up the body of Christ, and I think it's really important that we all pray about that and understand what that role is. What is it that God is calling us to do? Now, that's where we left off last week. Any questions from what we discussed last week? We only got through 16 verses last week. Picking up now with verse 17 in chapter 4 of Ephesians. It says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So remember, he's talking about non-believers people who are separated from God. It's interesting, just reflecting back as he starts this chapter, chapter four, he says, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now he's saying, don't walk as unbelievers separated from God. We're to walk worthy of what we've been called to do. We each have a job to do. Let me just show you something over here in Galatians 2.20. It says, 
I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. If we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we're to walk worthy of that. And we're, we're to walk in a way that we're called by God and to play the role that God has called us to do. And it's not us. We're to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us to be able to do that. And so now he's going to describe what non-believers are like. I want to spend some time on this because this is something we tend to gloss over. And it's so evident in our culture today. So he says, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles in the futility of their mind, and listen to this, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And we've talked about that. I want to I dig into what is meant by hardness of their heart. And then verse 19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So what is this hardness of heart? It's where you get to the point that you just, you can't even understand or respond to God, or you don't even have the ability to do His will. You're spiritually separated. You're shut off from God. You can't do what pleases God because you can't, you're sort of like blocking the ability, even as a Christian, for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. So then you start not even able to, to hear the Holy Spirit talking to you. And I pulled this out. This is a commentator that I like to read, uh, John MacArthur. Many of you probably have heard him. Let me just read this and just think in your mind as you're listening to what he wrote here about what this hardness of heart means and think about our culture. He says, All people initially recognize at least some standard of right and wrong, and they have a, a certain sense of shame when they act against that standard. Consequently, they usually try to hide their wrongdoing. They may continually fall back into it, but they still recognize it as wrong, as something that they should not be doing, and their conscience will not let them remain comfortable. So as you think about sometimes when we sin, your conscience kind of pops in there and says, ah, man, I can't believe I did that again. I probably shouldn't have done whatever it was, anything, porn, alcohol, drugs, greed, anger, launching off on somebody, not having patience with somebody. Have I touched everybody yet, or should I keep going? Okay. Quit touching me, man. Yes. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? There's a time where you do that, and every time you do it, it's like, oh, man, I can't believe I did that again. I'm, I'm sorry. But here's what happens. But as they continue to overrule conscience and train themselves to do evil and to ignore guilt, they eventually reject those standards and determine to live solely by their own desires, thereby revealing an already seared conscience. Having rejected all divine guidelines and protection, they become depraved in mind and give themselves over to sensuality. Such a person cares nothing about what other people think, not to mention about what God thinks, but only about what gratifies the cravings of their own warped mind. Ungodliness and its attendant immorality destroy the mind as well as the conscience and the spirit. 
rejection of God and his truth and righteousness finally results in what Paul refers to in Romans as a depraved mind, a mind that is no mind, that cannot reason, that cannot think clearly, that cannot recognize or understand God's truth, and that loses contact with spiritual reality. In its extreme, the depraved mind loses contact with all reality. That is the mindlessness of the self-indulgent, the celebrity who loses his career, his insanity, and often his life because of wanton sensuality. When indecency becomes a way of life, every aspect of life is corrupted, distorted, and eventually destroyed. What comes to my mind as I read that is just think about how our views as a culture have changed about adultery, homosexuality, abortion, and I'm not saying us, I'm just saying the culture in general. Just think back when we were kids. If you were in an adulterous relationship, you probably kept it a secret. Or if you were having sex outside of marriage, you probably kept it a secret. And look where we are today. It is common for people to live together outside of marriage and nobody bats an eye. It's gotten so much where people don't even view that as a sin. Our minds have become seared over that. You know, abortion is becoming that way. Instead of protecting a small child, it's a woman's right to be able to have sex and do whatever she wants to do. Who's speaking for the life of the child? Our minds are just becoming seared. We don't even recognize it as a potential problem. Nobody's speaking out hardly, very few, about the life of the child. Do you see what, I'm, see what he's talking about? Do you see how, this, how your mind, after you just stay in this mode of sin and sin and sin, how eventually it, it just sort of goes away from you? You, know, you don't even recognize it anymore. Your, your mind becomes seared. He continues on. He says, man is made for God and designed according to God's standards. But when man rejects God and his standards, he destroys himself in the process. The corruptions of our present society are not the result of psychological or sociological circumstances, but the result of personal choices based on principles that are specifically and purposely against God and his way. Homosexuality, sexual perversion, abortion, lying, cheating, stealing, murder, and every other type of moral degeneration have become unabashed and calloused ways of life through the conscious choices of those who indulge in them. Yet pornography, prostitution, X-rated films, suggested TV programs, and every kind of impurity form perhaps the largest industry in our country. The vast majority of our culture, it's open, unashamed, and legally protected. The market for pornography is not confined to perverts or other emotional cripples. To the contrary, the largest part of the market is middle-class people. In an increasingly permissive society, those who enjoy pornography are free to revel in it. The surprising revelation was that according to one official estimate, the nation's pornographers do more than $4 billion worth of business a year, which is more than the combined incomes of the often supportive movie and music industries. It's a huge industry. When a person determines to think his own way, do things his own way, and pursue his own destiny, he cuts himself off from God. And when that happens, he cuts himself off from truth and becomes spiritually blind and without standards of morality. Without standards of morality, immorality becomes a shameless and calloused way of life. When that is continued, it destroys the mind's ability to distinguish good from evil, truth from falsehood, 
reality from unreality. The godless life becomes the mindless life. It's the direction that every ungodly person is headed, although some are further along than others. As I read that, I don't know if that, any of that resonates with you, but it causes me to just think about what sin I have in my life that I've just been doing it so much that my brain has become seared over it and where I just don't even acknowledge it anymore as a sin. So I'd encourage each of you to, to think about that because I'm talking to myself. I'm not, believe me, I'm not throwing stones here. I'm throwing them at, at myself too. How many things that we continually do that are causing us, and we're going to see later, well, verse 30, we'll get there. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God to whom you were sealed. How many things do we continually do that grieve the Holy Spirit who's sitting right here with us to help us? Several months ago, we talked about the exit ramp. There's no temptation that we've ever endured that isn't common to man. And actually, God even protects us. Doesn't give us all the temptation that could be put upon us. Actually serves as a buffer. Only allows such temptation that we're able to overcome it. And always, there's an exit ramp. There's always an exit ramp. But so many times we fail to take the exit ramp because we'd rather pursue the gratification that we need, self-gratification that we need at that time, whatever it might be. It is easier. It is easier. It's easier. And, and you know what's amazing is we think, ah, just this one time. And as soon as you do it, hopefully you still, that little guilt comes and you go, can't believe I did that again. I mean, maybe it was an argument you had with your wife. or I mean, it can be anything. I can tell you we all have got it. If you're denying it, then the Bible says, then you're basically trying to say God's a liar because we've all got it. And so I'd encourage us today to really think about what are those things that I just keep on doing. And we can't fix it ourselves. So if you think I'm going to just have stronger willpower to fix it, you'll never get there on your own. There's no way to get there. You gotta draw on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Larry, that word hardness is translated blindness. Yes. And that's just exactly what's happening to us. We become blind to our own sin. Yes. We become acutely aware of everyone else's sin. Right. But blind to our own sin. Absolutely right. This really speaks to me as, as I'm reading this. Let, let's continue on to see what Paul says as Christians. Before you leave it, yes. I, I was highlighting one bracket too where it's given themselves over. Almost like it is a, I mean, just an outright voluntary choice. Absolutely it is. A decision. Yes. It's not even an accident. And it's like, if you want to go pursue that, have at it. That is, it's your choice. That is convicting. Yes. And so what choices are each of us making routinely that are causing us to grieve the Holy Spirit? As that we give ourselves over to these things, but there also comes a time when God says, I give you over. You read Romans 1. Yes. He gave them over to their vile affections and cares. Yes. That's, that's a little, you don't want to get to that point. You don't want to get to that point. Absolutely right. And in fact, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And I hadn't realized this, and I haven't done any independent research to know if this is true, but I read one commentator as I was preparing for this. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. There it is, Revelation 2. This is John saying, to the, it, remember, we're in the letter to the Ephesians. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. So he's talking about some good things, okay? However, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. So it's an indication that they've, they've left their love for the Lord or maybe their love for others. And he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And what's interesting, and again, sorry, I don't know if, if this, is, this was from one commentator. It's a good source. I didn't have time to track it down. He claims that the church in Ephesus eventually drew away, and to this day there is no more church in Ephesus. I don't know if that's the case. Do you know anybody? The church is okay. no longer. Uh-huh. So that's the warning that, that George is talking about. Not that you would lose your salvation, but you certainly can get to the point where you just are completely walking your own path here on earth and not being able to receive the full blessings that God would otherwise want to bestow upon you. So this is really serious stuff. Now let's pick up with what Paul's going to say about us as Christians. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, it has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so this is the process of sanctification. But what he's saying is, going back to verse 1 in chapter 4, we should walk in the manner worthy of our calling. We've got to call on the power of the Holy Spirit who's living within us to help change us and transform us and take what we learn here in these lessons you know, and discussions every week in this Bible study and do something with it. If we're living our lives today the same, in the, there's nothing different about us today than five years ago, something is wrong. Something is truly wrong. If you do not feel that you are closer to God than you were five years ago, and now I know some people are, are new Christians, and so that's okay. Everyone has to mature. But going to, back to what we talked about last week, in verse 13, we're to mature, we're to grow up. If you don't feel that you're growing in your relationship, you need to pray to the Holy Spirit and, and ask why, why that is. What do you need to do different? How can you grow in your relationship with God? We're to walk in, in a manner worthy of our calling and be renewed and put on the new self. Verse 25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with their neighbor. For we are members of one another, meaning that we're all part of this church. We're all part of one body, the body of Christ. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, this is a verse that is misquoted all the time. And I talk about this for those of you who went through the marriage enrichment class with me. It's interesting. He doesn't say don't be angry. Anger is an emotion. We didn't see Jesus, his anger very often, but we did see it. Show you in Mark. And it says be angry, but let me go into that. Mark 3, 5. And after this is Jesus talking. Let me back up. And Jesus entered into the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath in order that they, this the Pharisees, might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forward. And Jesus said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, this is Jesus, grieved at their hardness of heart. Can we just hear about that? Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So Jesus was angry with them. But what does it say? It says, be angry, but don't sin. So anger is an emotion. It's not a sin. But anger can lead to sin if we don't control it. Because he even says, if you keep that anger in you, you're giving the devil an opportunity. And that opportunity is not to be able to show love to your neighbor. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It does not say solve all your problems before the sun goes down. If it's late at night and you're in an argument with your wife, you're probably not going to get that solved before you go to bed. In fact, you may just make it worse. But what you, So it doesn't say solve your problem before the sun goes down. It says solve your anger problem. Calm yourself down. Tell your wife you love her. Calm yourself down so in the next, in the morning, in the light of day, you can now think clearly and realize whatever you were angry about, it was probably stupid anyway. But now you have the ability to find peace and show love. But it says, calm your anger down. Don't, set, don't try to solve your problem before the sun goes down. If you can, that's great, but more than likely, you're tired, you're heated up if it's happening in the evening, but you need to show love. Let me just show you something that I've showed you before, uh, if I can find it real quick. I've shared this with you before. I'm in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. It says, you husbands likewise, and I'm going to talk about this when we come back together, but since we're going into the end of the year, let me hit this now. You husbands likewise live with your lives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You wonder why maybe your prayers aren't being answered? How are you treating your wife? And it's interesting to me, I find it fascinating that there isn't a similar verse where he tells this to to wives, at least that I'm aware of. I think today we should think about, with, with these couple of verses, how are we treating our wives? Are we treating them with the honor and the love that they deserve? They are gifts to us from God. And we're going to get into that in detail when we get into chapter 5. But I think going into this Christmas season, our wives are under a lot of stress right now with Christmas and all the stuff that has to be prepared and 
all the commercialism that, that Christmas now brings to all of us, and they're probably going to be a little short-tempered. If we can be understanding and show the love with the help of the Holy Spirit and be that light and let them see that they did pick the right guy when they married us, that can be difficult. But I'd say that'd be a, a really wonderful gift we could all give our wives this Christmas season. Do something a little special for them. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And you were called to that marriage. You made a vow to God, and so walk worthy of it. Think about how you're treating your wife, and you might be angry at times, but don't sin. Any questions about that? How many times have we given the devil an opportunity with our wife? One time, Kathy said to me, when I was probably laying in my casket, she was going to take my to-do list and fold it up and stick it in my pocket. <laughs> I can take my to-do list with me. Um, <laughs> She's putting it in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. It's like, here's your <laughs> This is why <laughs> it's gone. And then this, this is past weekend because this resonates. Uh, she's been under a lot of pressure dealing with her uh, mother's estate. And I can know. I cannot even imagine how difficult that is to go through all these old memories. And, and uh, so she comes back home, and it's it's. I'm still trying to go through resolution of issue mode. And, but we wound up spending most of the day Saturday and a lot of the day Sunday just talking. And we went out to dinner Friday night. And I have to tell you, and the end result is, is it was great for both of us. But boy, in the back of my head, I was mechanically having to tell myself, clear out this other thinking, yeah. which was right there yeah. in front of my face. And I just had things I wanted to do and accomplish and get done. And I encourage each of you uh, to go watch that YouTube video, It's Not About the Nail. I, and I know you've probably seen it before, but just, it's very short. It's not about the nail. I won't. If you haven't seen it, you're going to love it. So uh, if you have seen it, go watch it again. Just think of that as we go into the holiday season with our spouse. I'll leave you with that. What about the nail? Uh, <laughs> uh, you got to go watch it. Okay, so let me close us out here. Verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor. So we're all, we're all called to work for our family and, and to give to others. Uh, performing with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who is in need. Uh, one of the purposes of, of us working is also to share with others who are in need, and there's lots of those out there right now, especially in this city. 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. So we're to encourage others. There may be a moment, there's a need of the moment, that somebody needs some encouragement, and that's also the way that they can see Christ living through you mm -hmm. uh, in the way that you're an encourager to others. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. We saw over in Ephesians 1 verses 13 through 14 that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. We were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, which is rage, 
in anger, which can be abuse, clamor, which may be shouting, and slander, that could be hurtful words. All those need to be put away from you, along with all malice, meaning our bad feelings towards other people. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted and forgiving, meaning we need to say, I'm sorry. I bet there's something we could find to say, I'm sorry, to our spouse and probably several others, family members, uh, this, these coming holidays. Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, the people we're angry at, they're not perfect, and they might have really done something that warranted our anger. But remember, they're not perfect either. We're not perfect, and the worst thing we can do is cast judgment on them because if we're going to judge them, do we want God to judge us for all the things that we've done wrong, which is a daily occurrence for me. No, I enjoy the grace of God, and we're to extend that grace, as you see, in verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. So how are we offering grace to those that we encounter, particularly family members during these holidays? So I leave you with that. How are we going to apply this today? How are we going to be different this Christmas than last Christmas? Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.